with Christ. So I think Tim is speaking this morning on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Tim. I thank you for all the words you've given him to speak to us this morning. And I pray that you would anoint him by your spirit, that your words would penetrate our hearts and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sophie. I was involved in a, in a webinar last week, one of these things we've all learned to do during the last couple of years, and it was about finding identity and purpose through faith in Christ as the key in our search for happiness and contentment and so on, and it was good stuff. But it was accompanied, you remember as you look at these things, you get the chat box on the side of your screen. And it was accompanied by a constant stream of comments in the chat box, confirming that if there's one thing that separates an awful lot of people from the kingdom of God, it's religion and it's the church. We all hopefully know that the church is a hopelessly flawed organization made up of deeply flawed individuals, just like you and me. But to many of those searching for answers, we're all too often appear, we all too often appear to be locked in completely irrelevant internal battles or to be hypocritical. Bible smart, but failing to live out Jesus' heart. Speaking about God's love and Christ's sacrifice, but living as though neither make much difference day to day to our lives. And in these discussions, I usually, usually gladly and gleefully declare that I'm not religious. I'm just a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what is pretty clear, to me anyway, as I read through the Gospels, is that Jesus wasn't very religious either. He spends an awful lot of time in conflict with his church of the time. And he's unremitting in his criticism of its leadership and its practices. Many of his stories in the Gospels are about his clashes with the Jewish authorities, with the lawyers, the teachers of the scriptures, who basically hate him for his religious rebellious streak uh, streak, and are constantly trying to test him, to catch him out and to shred his reputation. And today's story is a great example of this. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, a very familiar story that you'll have heard many times, most of you. And when we think of it, we usually remember the man who was stripped and beaten, robbed and left half dead lying in the street. Ignored by a passing priest and the Levite, both of whom were supposed to be his friends, he's helped by a Samaritan, the least likely person to stop, all revealing a fundamental truth about neighborliness. But this powerful and evocative story starts when a religious leader, an expert in the Jewish Mosaic law, stands up to test Jesus by asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now this guy knows his stuff. He probably has most of the Old Testament law memorized and because he's so familiar with it, he knows that it's not an easy question to answer, that it would trip up even the best teachers of his day, which is clearly what he hopes is going to happen now. But Jesus is pretty smart too. His response is typically brilliant. And as he so often does, he dodges the trap being set and turns the tables by throwing the question back at him. What do you think, he asks? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And here's the thing. The expert in the law answers correctly. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He gets it right. It's a good answer. And Jesus acknowledges that. You've answered correctly, he says. But then, crucially, he tags on the additional comment that it's not okay just to know it. You have to actually live it. Do this, he says, and you will live. Which should be the end of it. But it isn't. Let's hear the whole story being read to us by Bob. From Luke chapter 10 and beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. So do this and you will live. You've answered correctly said Jesus. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In the reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite came, and when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, Well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Thanks, Bob. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable, this story that Jesus told so many years ago. And Lord, as we look at it, it's a familiar story to us, but we pray, Lord, now that you would please come. Dear Holy Spirit, that you would come and open our hearts and our minds to listen afresh and to learn something new and then to leave this place and put it into action, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So instead of walking away, satisfied, the lawyer, we're told, wanting to justify himself, falls straight into the hole that's been set for him. And who is my neighbor? He asks. The common teaching of the day made it clear that a neighbor only included fellow Israelites. But Jesus destroys this idea, blows a hole through it by launching into a story about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on a road known to be dangerous where thieves would often hide in many caves and curves and cliffs and ambush unsuspecting travelers. It's not a route that you would travel alone. And from the beginning, those listening would have recognized how foolish it was for this man to do so. Of course, the inevitable happens. To no one's surprise, the traveler is ambushed, beaten up, robbed, and left to die on the side of the road. But this isn't a story of the consequences of foolish decisions. It's much more than that. And in this second scene of the story, Jesus takes on, homes in on the lawyer. Badly beaten, the traveler is barely hanging on to life when a priest comes by. Tom, or Sophie, or me. But any initial hope is quickly dispelled. The priest doesn't help. And not only does he not help, Jesus makes it clear that he goes out of his way to pass by on the other side. Next, a Levite comes by the blooded traveller. Surely he will stop and help. Nope. He too passes by on the other side. No doubt this would have shocked those listening to the story. Both of these guys are clergymen. A priest's job was to officiate at temple sacrifices, to lead the Sunday service. And Levites helped maintain the temple and its services. Of all the people likely to show compassion to a fellow Jewish traveler, surely it is going to be them. But both of them go out of their way to avoid the injured man. Why? Why do they do this? Their jobs required them to remain ceremonially clean while on duty. There was a long list of things they couldn't do before they went into the temple. And one of them ruled out touching any dead body. But in adhering to the rule over the needs of the people, being more concerned with what they couldn't do rather than what they should do, they completely missed the point of their calling. It's where your heart is that matters. And theirs was in the wrong place. And at this point, the lawyer's heart must have been sinking, as he probably knew that he would have done exactly the same thing. But Jesus isn't done. Things are about to get worse. In scene three, he unveils the unlikely hero of the hour. But a Samaritan. John's Gospel says that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And in the previous chapter to this story in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus received a hostile reception in Samaria. Which is strange, because the Samaritans shared many religious beliefs with the Jews. They had descended from the Israelites, and their religion, and the religion they practiced, came from the patriarchs and the Pentateuch. But they were nonetheless seen as half-breeds. And we only have to remember the bloody religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics in the early 16th century in Europe to see how deeply two broadly religions can hate each other. 
Now, leaving aside the fact that some Samaritans had recently desecrated the Jewish temple with human bones during Passover, an act guaranteed to ignite existing religious tensions, the chief bone of contention between them seems to have been the location of the chosen place to worship God. The Jews believed that this was the Temple Mount of Moriah in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans believed it was on a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is why, if you remember the story, when Jesus is traveling through Samaria and stops to, re- to scandalously meet and, t- and talk with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, he, he says to her that the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on your mountain nor in Jerusalem. Either way, Jews went to great lengths to avoid Samaria entirely when traveling from Judea to Galilee, which is why Jesus displays his genius in this story, intentionally choosing a Samaritan to be the hero. And the Samaritan doesn't just check on the guy, he goes well beyond all of that. He not only has compassion, but his compassion moves him into action. He cleans and binds up his wounds, carries him to an inn, pays for his stay. At some cost and inconvenience, he ensures that the man is cared for. The symbolism is striking. If the priest who passes by represents the law and the Levite represents the prophets, then the Samaritan represents Christ himself. Hated by the religious leaders, as Jesus was, the Samaritan rescued the person that needed him the most, as Jesus does on the cross. And the Samaritan did all of this out of love for someone who could never repay him, as Jesus did. But Jesus isn't quite done yet. The story could end there, but he takes up the closing scene and the aftermath. The story was brought on by two questions. And Jesus now circles back around them. The lawyer's questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life and who is my neighbor, are the wrong questions focused on the wrong thing. He was concerned with the correct theology. But Jesus knows and shows that knowing the right answer is insufficient. All the correct Bible head knowledge is useless if it doesn't lead to a transformation of the heart. The questions aren't what is the right thing to believe or who is my neighbor, but how can I be a good neighbor? How can I live out my beliefs? And to drive his point home, Jesus poses a question to the lawyer. Which of the three involved do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer can't even bring himself to admit that the Samaritan was the better neighbor. Indeed, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So he simply replies, well, the one who had mercy on him. And no doubt he leaves pretty disgruntled when Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. So what do we learn from all of that? Well, it's easy, of course, to look down on the lawyer and dismiss the failings of the priest and the Levite but not quite so easy to look into the mirror and examine our own lives. Whilst we may want to be kind and generous, the harsh reality is, for most of us, for most of the time, we live our lives focusing in on our own needs. We want from life. 
Like them, we too look for loopholes and excuses to pass by on the other side, to only do what is most convenient to do. But if that's all there is in our lives, then surely that's a terrible story story to tell. A good intention never acted upon is worth nothing in God's kingdom. And Jesus calls us, indeed I think he demands of us, that we do better than that. What matters to him is the action we take in the form of the help and support we give to those in need. So the first obvious lesson is that the only thing that matters is what we do, not what we know or what we believe. Secondly, we're called upon to help those in need even if. We need to be very careful about labels, especially labels branded into us by our prejudices reinforced by the media. Being a follower of Jesus means there is no foreigner or stranger, someone whose ideas, whose culture and race are different to ours, is not, by definition, the enemy. We're called to help even if the person doesn't look like us or speak our language or believe in our God or if they've snubbed or hurt us. The Samaritan and the fallen men, a fallen man, were enemies by the world's standards. But Jesus doesn't ask anything of us that is based on the world's standards. We are called to reach out in love and kindness towards those that the world tells us to ignore or to hate. And we aren't to turn our backs on them. And we're called to help even if it's inconvenient. Like the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan had things to do and places to go. He had a life and obligations. Helping the hurt man was certainly an inconvenience. But he puts his life aside for that moment and did what was required to make sure that the man got the help he needed. And we're called to help those in need even if they haven't asked us directly for our help and even if there's no reward for doing so. There was no obvious benefit for the Samaritan to help the fallen man. In fact, it cost him quite a lot financially. Our human nature makes us willing to help, to be inconvenienced when there's a reward at stake, maybe financial, or to impress someone, or to bring attention to ourselves. But the best reward surely comes from helping someone when there's nothing in it for us except knowing that we're pleasing to God in our actions. Now, this all said, there's a seemingly unsolvable mass of great challenges out there. Global poverty and equality, climate change, war, instability. So, is it really possible to see every single person whom we share this world no longer as a stranger or a foreigner or an alien? Is it really possible to see people we may never meet and may never even know in our town, our city, our country, and across the globe and call them our neighbor, regardless of which race they belong to or what religious beliefs they have? Can we really look at the world as one rather than through the lens of our narrow national views, politics, economics, or whatever? 
Well, I think God's answer to those questions is the same as his answer to the question, am I my brother or my sister's keeper? Unequivocally, he replies, yes. Yes, it is. And yes, you can. By making the Samaritan the good guy, Jesus cuts to the heart of those sorts of questions. Our neighborhood is as wide as the love of God. And our brothers and sisters are to be found in every community on this planet. And if nothing else, events in the Ukraine have surely reminded us of that. Can we put the picture up, Stefan, please? I've kept this picture of these three Syrian children in a camp in the Kurdish region of Iraq in my study by my desk since I saw it in the papers back in January 1921. Uh, 2021, last year. I wasn't around in 1921. <laughs> but it reminded me of my own time visiting there. I'd been to the Kurdish region in, in that part of the world, and my brigade had built and run refugees. And I can't be alone, surely, in being deeply moved by these young faces. At least we have each other. And I was also moved by the pictures, and Rolly's referred to this in his prayers, of the, on the television, of the young children being lifted onto the shelves in those bomb shelters in Kiev. You must have seen some of those too. If the Good Samaritan story teaches us anything, it's that Bible knowledge is not enough. We need the right heart. But changing our own heart is nigh on impossible. Only God can cultivate in us a heart that beats like his if we're prepared to let him. And that starts, of course, with prayer. So we need to pray for God's heart and keep our eyes open. And when we see someone in need, not think about having the right words or hope that someone else will step in to help them or simply say a prayer. We simply say, Lord, help me to do something in this circumstance. Ask God for the courage and then we step out in faith. Now, it may be that you feel there's little that you can do to change things in the world that we're living in. If so, then remember the story of the little bird lying on the ground with its feet in the air. A man came along and asked, little bird, what are you doing there lying on the ground with your feet in the air? And the little bird replied, I heard the sky was falling in, so I thought I would do what I could do to stop it. The man laughed scornfully and said, your little feet won't stop the sky falling in. To which the bird replied, one does what one can. One does what one can. I think it was Jackie Plunger who said that too many of us Christians have hard hearts and soft feet. So we must pray, as Roddy did earlier, that God would soften our hearts and harden our feet. To use this place... This church, St. Paul's Church, to come to as an oasis from which we drink and then to get out into the world and begin to make a difference. By getting out of our comfort zone and helping others in unplanned, random acts of kindness, individually and collectively. Which is exactly what Marilyn Pritchard did when the call came to help with that rather appropriately named charity, Samara's Aid. 
as she told us last week. And as Bill and Sharon are doing in, the, uh, in Moldova, the team in Moldova are helping now deal with the refugees pouring into Moldova out of Ukraine. I think I'm right in saying, Bill, 16,000 women and children in the last couple of days. And they're trying to raise money for that and, and put that in through their, through their team. Is there anything else you want to say, Bill? No. Yeah, everybody hear that, okay? The daughter has a house full of refugees, and the team are, are actively involved in looking after them. And they're trying to raise money for that, obviously, so that we can help there. But there are all sorts of other things we can do, too. And to put this parable into perspective, maybe Jesus would have said a man was going along on the road from Kiev to Poland when he was beaten up. And a Russian soldier came along and saw the Ukrainian in the road and stopped to help him. We mustn't dismiss all Russians and not pray for them, the young soldiers that are involved in this conflict. So we need to see the parable in the light of what's happening around the world today. Finally, never forget that helping the person who needs our help is helping Christ. Remember the famous words in Matthew's Gospel. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes. And you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And when we ask, when did we do any of these things? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you do, for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you're doing for me. Now this is very easy to say. And the truth is, I've probably been more challenged by preparing the sermon than many of you sitting here in front of me. But I have to tell you, I want to be blessed by the king. I want to take my inheritance in the kingdom of God. And I want to hear the words, well done, and faithful servant. And I trust that you all do want that as well. Amen. Thank you, Tim. We're going to have a, a time now of confession. I think uh, whenever I hear the story of the Good Samaritan, it's challenging. Uh, and, it, and it brings to mind situations where perhaps I have not stepped up when I should have, when God has called me and I've ignored. So um, the words are going to come up on the screen. Uh, and if you say the words in yellow, I'm going to go quite slowly because I think this needs time to settle in our hearts and to challenge our hearts. Loving Father, we bring our lack of love to you. We say together, bring us life.